It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. A quick content warning before we get started. This episode of The Murder Sheet describes instances of physical abuse and violence against women. The waters of White Lick Creek are sandy, quiet, and as gray as the clouds above. Standing on the banks, the air is thick with that salty smell of wet decay. Birds flap overhead. Logs poke up through the calm here and there. Who knows what else lies beneath the surface? We visited the creek in Mooresville, Indiana, on a rainy day in October. A camo-clad man on an ATV rumbled by us a few times, probably wondering what had made us trespass on hunting grounds armed with just a recorder and a selfie stick. Other than him, 
and the understandably peeved property owner who confronted us on the walk back to the road, we were alone at the bend in the creek. White Lick Creek, and the secrets it may or may not still hold, flows through the heart of our story today. It's here, in June of 1979, where a teenage boy notices a sealed barrel washed up on the sandbar in the middle of the water. Being a teenager, he got curious. So, he took a carpenter's hammer and cut a hole in the side of the barrel, one large enough for him to stick his hand into. The teenager reached in and pulled out a small piece of carpet, then a bit of plastic. When he inserted his hand again, he felt a piece of rope. He tugged at it. A skull spilled out of the barrel onto the sand. Was it possible that he had just discovered the body of the first victim of the man who would go on to commit the Burger Chef murders? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're the Murder Sheet. We'll be taking a multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders. We'll be presenting you with a new theory about what happened each week as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. On a weekly basis, you're going to hear from figures you've never heard from before. You're going to hear about facts you've never heard before. And hopefully, you'll walk away with a better understanding of the sheer complexity of this awful crime. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We've worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. In this mini-series, we will give you the top theories about the crime. After we finish covering the Burger Chef case, the murder sheet will continue to investigate different restaurant-related homicides for the rest of Season 1. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is You Never Can Forget, The Creek. of the Burger Chef murders, the victims were likely abducted in the town of Speedway, Indiana, in Marion County, and transported to the woods of Johnson County, where they were murdered. That jurisdictional tangle meant that the Indiana State Police took the lead on the case early on, 
with assistance from the other agencies. Here's Jim Kramer, who worked the case for the Indiana State Police. We worked out of the Speedway Police Department. There were, uh, I don't remember the exact number of us there, uh, state police-wise, uh, maybe 14, 18, something like that. We worked in uh, pairs. We would meet there in the mornings. They would give us uh, three-by-five cards with lead information uh, to follow up. Uh, then we would we would leave and uh, spend the day running down all the leads we could, come back and you know turn in the uh, cards with the results of our uh, or what we had discovered. One of the state troopers that Kramer worked most closely with was Donovan Lindsay. Lindsay and Kramer would continue working together on the Burger Chef case for years to come. Don was uh, he was. He was the person, uh, you know, his information came in to make sure the case was put together, the paperwork was done. Uh, when leads came in, they would funnel through to him. You know, there were other folks involved, uh, but uh, Don was, he was the guy. In the early days, the Burger Chef murders brought to mind another Indiana mass killing fresh in the detectives' memories. Well, that was the biggest case that a lot of us had worked on uh, in our career. Uh, some of the guys had been involved on the periphery of a similar case out in uh, Hollinsburg the year before. In that crime, a group of men led by Roger Drollinger broke into a home and forced the residents, a woman, her son, and her three stepsons, to lie on the floor. All five were then shot. Only the mother survived. Drollinger was behind bars within a couple of months, but a solution in the Burger Chef case proved more elusive. It was gathering lots and lots of information. Of course, I kind of equated it to like uh, fishing with a a hook and no bait. You know, you're just, we were casting around, you know, trying to develop what information we could get. Sometimes the leads they received clearly held little value, like the many, many tips they received from people who claimed to have spotted men who somehow resembled the composite drawings the police released of the suspects. But other times, it seemed like what they were being told could potentially be the key to solving the entire case. Around 1980 or 1981, an individual uh, came to uh, Don Lindsay and my attention. Uh, we actually got a phone call from uh, a uh, counselor at the Marion County Jail who said, uh, "We, you know, I know you two are the ones who have been working this case, uh, the murder chef. And he said, I've got some information if you can come down and talk to me, which we did. And this um, story basically was there were two uh, prisoners who had got into it. And there were some comments made about the burger chef. Well, one of the persons involved in this incident was Jimmy Freet. Jimmy was the brother of Jane Freet, one of the burger chef victims. He was in jail after being arrested on cocaine trafficking charges. We will have quite a bit more to say about him in a future episode. The other person involved in the confrontation was a young redhead named Alan Pruitt, who liked booze and fast cars. He'd been arrested on probation violation charges, 
we think. It's hard to find correctional records that far back. When Kramer and Lindsay went to talk with Pruitt, they learned that the man claimed to have visited the Speedway Dunkin' Donuts with a friend on the night of the murders. The visit was awkward. The men were drunk, and an ex-girlfriend of Pruitt's buddy was there. And so, after a few moments, Pruitt slipped out to the parking lot, clutching his roiling stomach. He got out there just as the Burger Chef employees next door were being abducted. He was in a position to have seen the whole thing, and even to identify the perps. The first question on the detectives' minds was obvious. Was Pruitt even actually there that night? Uh, We found lead information in the case where a uh, gentleman was sitting in the Dunkin' Donuts who is completely unrelated to any of these people, an older gentleman. And he described seeing uh, exactly what this witness told us happened. The two guys came in. Uh, they were drunk. That one guy left, went out, and was by the car. The ex-girlfriend working at Dunkin' Donuts initially denied seeing Pruitt, but later she too confirmed that he had been there that night. We should note here that the ex-girlfriend was also the girl who was dating George Nichols, who you heard from in the previous episode. She and George had seen two guys outside the Burger Chef that night, and their statements were the basis for the sketches of the suspects that were widely circulated to the public. I'm confident that this witness I'm talking about, this male, was standing in the parking lot at the minimum, looking at the back of the burger shop and had an opportunity to see what occurred there. So what did Pruitt say he saw? The answer to that is in a deposition Pruitt gave in 1981, a deposition that has been sitting in a file in the Hendricks County Courthouse for nearly 40 years, available to anyone who knew where to search for it. I will read some excerpts from that deposition now with some help from Anya to set the scene. Alan and his friend grew up in Avon, a small and quiet town without much to do, except to drink and drag race. Sometimes he would go into Indianapolis and hang out at a 24-hour White Castle on the west side. Perhaps it was there that he heard about the Galaxy, a new under-21 club in Speedway. People said a lot of good-looking girls hung out there. It sounded like it was worth the drive. So, on November 17, 1978, Alan and his friend made the trip. We ended up over at Speedway, the Galaxy, probably around 10.30, somewhere along in there. I can't remember if we went into the Galaxy or not. I think we did. The Galaxy was in a shopping center across the street from the Dunkin' Donuts and the Burger Chef. After a while, the donut shop seemed to hold more appeal to the friends than the club. We left the shopping center. My friend pulled into Dunkin' Donuts, parked there on the east side of the lot, went inside. His ex-girlfriend was working there at the time. My friend went in there and introduced me to her, and they talked a little bit. I told my friend, I'm going outside. I'd been drinking quite a bit. Stomach was upset. I went outside, heard some racket next door, a burger chef there, and I walked around to the side of Dunkin' Donuts to see what was going on. Seen this orange van sitting there, an orange Ford, I think, travel all vans, Econoline, something like that. A long type of van. It was orange, and it had a white spoke. Curtain was on it, 
had oval-shaped bubble windows. Alan saw someone by the van. I recognized the guy, Jeff Reed. He evidently went inside, came back out, and I seen where he grabbed the black boy. That would have likely been Mark Flemons, the only African-American victim of the Burger Chef murders. Grabbed him by the back and threw him towards the van, and he went down and hit his head on the back corner of the van, and I guess it either killed him or knocked him out, and Jeff picked him up, put him in the van. That's when I seen Tim Willoughby, right after that. Him and Jane and another girl, they walked out the back towards the east side of the building. Her car must have been sitting and I seen them as they pulled out, pulled out of the parking lot. I'm pretty sure they went east when they left. I seen everything as well as I remember it. There was no problem there. I mean, I remember everything, but it just seems more like a movie, you know? It doesn't seem real. Probably because I was intoxicated at the time. Alan also claimed to have information that explained the reason behind the confrontation he witnessed that night. Before that night, there was some talk going on about a situation Jane got herself involved with Tim Willoughby over drugs. Well, she was running two ounces of coke and she came up with this bit, said that somebody stole it out of the car. Tim was telling me that he had to either get something straightened out. She either had to come up with the money, because there was people on the end, you know, was supposed to have been paid for at such a time, and it then wasn't paid for, and I guess somebody was raising hell with him. And I started thinking all about that. Tim was mainly bitching about. He was getting tired about the way she was doing things. And every time she'd go sell something for him, she'd come up with something about a shortage of money. She'd say, well, somebody said it wasn't that good. and They just offered me a halfway fair price for it. So I went ahead and sold it to them. She was pocketing the money out of it. I guess Tim was getting kind of fed up with it. Despite all of that, Alan did not feel alarmed or concerned about what he witnessed that night. I didn't really think much about it at the time. First I figured, they're getting some uh, to go to a party or something, until they had that black boy. Then I thought he just got mouthy or something and just called off and knocked the hell out of him. I remember going down, you know, the highways, the way my friend drives. Wake up once in a while. I remember when we got home, talked to my mom and my brother my friend said, let's go get some more beer. I guess we went and got some more beer. And what my mom says, we came back to the house about 15 minutes later. We both fell asleep in the car. Pruitt's statement, as you heard, implicated Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby as the murderers. So who are these men? Let's start with Jeff Reed. He was a guitarist, but was best known in the area for being the king of the snake pit. That was an area on the infield of the track at the Indianapolis 500. Here is Will Higgins, an Indianapolis Star writer known for putting himself into strange and extreme situations. We spoke with him in a coffee shop last year. Apologies for the audio quality. The rules were sort of suspended. I mean, I I was there, I thought, and um, it was just like lawless. It was a place where people could go and drink and make out and make love and flash people and roll around in the mud and have fun. It was free love at the first turn, all in full view of the horrified families sitting in the stands. Some of the biggest partiers in the snake pit even came up with a joking name for themselves, the Riff Raff Society. As the king, 
Reed was royalty in this community. Anya and I got to pay a call on a couple who were a big part of the snake pit scene and had the photos to prove it. Hope you're not offended by nudity, said the wife as she pulled out the first of a seemingly endless series of images of dead-eyed, smiling women dutifully exposing their bodies to the leering eye of the camera. We've talked to many of Reed's associates from this period, and they generally remember him as a good and loyal friend with a gift for making them laugh. But there are some dissenting voices. Talk of Reed having a side that not everyone saw. When Reed got angry, sources say he could become randomly violent, tearing mailboxes from the ground and ripping mirrors off cars. One person who witnessed this part of Reed's personality told us that she called the police in 1978 and let them know they should look at Reed as a suspect in the Burger Chef murders. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned Roger Drollinger, the man who led a group who murdered four people in Hollinsburg, Indiana. Reed and Drollinger were friends. Reed actually lived with Drollinger for a time. The two of them even committed some crimes together. On one memorable occasion, the two men worked together to do what they called Christmas shopping. They took a grocery bag, followed a postman as he delivered mail, and stole any envelope that looked like it might contain cash or a check. After they filled their sack, they returned to Drollinger's place and started tearing open the Christmas cards and holiday letters they had snatched. If they found a check, they kept it. Everything else they tossed. After they were caught, Reed pled guilty and testified against Drollinger. A policeman who knew Reed in the 70s said Reed typically admitted his crimes when confronted, which makes it interesting to note that in the weeks after the Burgershev murders, police had information that Reed told several associates he was the guilty man. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet presents You Never Can Forget to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. 
but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. And then there's Tim Willoughby. A friend of his says Tim was charming and a smooth talker, the sort of guy who would win over a girl and then remember to ask if she had a girl for his buddy. But there was another side to Tim. He was a small-town hood who kept getting in trouble with the law. He got caught trying to steal a car, got busted for breaking into a pawn shop, and once even got arrested for trying to steal dumpsters. We're also baffled by that last one. And he could also be impulsive, emotional, the sort of man who was quick to anger. That was why the family of Mary Ann Higginbotham grew concerned when she fell in love with Tim. Here's Mary Ann's friend, Donna McIntyre. But when Mary Ann got hooked up with Tim, Mr. Higginbotham let it be known straight up front that Tim was not their type of people, and he was not going to accept him in their family as Marianne's man. The relationship confused Donna as well. She'd been friends with Marianne since childhood, and they'd gone to high school together. Donna knew Marianne as a softball player, an aspiring artist who loved to draw horses, a young woman who took her makeup so seriously that she'd separate each eyelash with a small pin before applying mascara. I mean, Marianne was a young, beautiful girl, and if you look at Tim's two pictures, he was not a nice-looking guy. Actually, he's dirty-looking. Um, he was just... Marianne was above him, way above him. Marianne could have been a model. And, and I just never could figure out how in the hell she ever ended up with somebody like him. I never will understand it. Seeing Marianne with Tim was a confirmation to Donna 
that her old friend was now running with a rougher, pot-smoking crowd. And today, she knows that Tim used more than his charm to woo Marianne. Tim was peddling drugs. It was easy to manipulate young girls if you had the right drugs. There were other problems. Here's Marianne's mother. He He beat her up, too. Finally, Marianne had had enough and asked for help. She contacted her brother Robert and asked him to come over to the place she shared with Tim. She was ready to move out. She called me to uh, come and pick her up. This was uh, several weeks before her last day of work. And uh, I went out there in the truck and was going to be picking her up, but uh, Tim had a gun and he was going to uh, shoot both of us. So and we ended up, uh, I ended up, she begged me to leave her there. Marianne tried again, reaching out to someone else. And she called her good friend and uh, wanted her to come and get her. That's before she was shot. Yeah. And she said, Mary, I can't because I've got something playing. And right off, that's when she was shot. In June of 1978, Marianne stopped showing up for work at Loughner's Cafeteria, and Tim failed to show up to serve a weekend jail sentence. The couple's landlord went to their place to investigate and found it empty. When the landlord went over there, there was uh, some of the linoleum and the carpeting and stuff that had been cut out, and it was just piled on a, a wood pile at the back of the house by the little crick back there. And some of Marianne's personal effects were thrown in the in the crick thing. They never found any of Tim's personal effects. Soon after that, a man identifying himself as Tim Willoughby called the Hendricks County Sheriff's Department. He said he and Marianne had gone to California, and he gave the address of Marianne's parents, presumably so that her personal effects could be given to them. After that, silence. Until, that is... That day in June 1979, when the teenage boy opened up the barrel he found in the creek. was when it came on the news that there was a barrel found. Mrs. Higginbotham called me. She said, I know that's Marianne. The body that was welded into the barrel was so decomposed that initially the police could not even be sure if it was male or female. The only thing they could tell was that the victim had been shot in the head. The Higginbotham family provided their daughter's dental records and then waited. I was with Mrs. Higginbotham when they confirmed that that was Marianne. And that was probably one of the hardest things I'd ever done, was be right there by Mrs. Higginbotham when she was told that. You don't ever get over losing a child, especially when she was shot. When we met with the Higginbotham family last year, they expressed sympathy for the young man who found the barrel. Even after all the horror they've been through, their thoughts were with someone else as they gathered together to recount the trauma of losing Marianne. I've always felt sorry for the, the child that found her. Yeah. Yeah, because he reached in and grabbed a head full of hair. Exactly. Donna, Marianne's friend, went on to become a victim's advocate, helping families like the Higginbothams recover from tragedies that they should never have to face alone. We've included a link to Donna's group, Missing and Not Forgotten, in our show notes. The Higginbotham family took some comfort in where the barrel was found. In the years since her disappearance, they had moved from Plainfield, Indiana, to Mooresville, 
and now made their home about a mile from where Marianne had been discovered. It was as if, in some way, despite everything, Marianne had managed to find a way to come home to them. But where was Tim? He had beaten Marianne, threatened her with a gun. She was welded into a barrel. Tim was an experienced welder. After the couple vanished, her property was left behind. His was not. Needless to say, before he was linked to the Burgershev case, Tim became a suspect in Mary Ann's murder. But police could not find him. After they heard Pruitt's story, Kramer and Lindsay stepped up the efforts to locate Tim and even got some good leads. But then a new informant stepped forward to reveal something startling. She had firsthand knowledge that Tim Willoughby had been murdered on the same day as Mary Ann Higginbotham back in June 1978 and had therefore been dead for nearly six months before the Burger Chef murders. Did this mean that Alan Pruitt had been lying, pinning the Burger Chef case on a dead man? Or was Tim Willoughby still alive and still out there? Join us next week for that informant's story. Plus, Kramer confronts Jeff Reed. And I was just blunt with him, uh, without reading him his rights, without anything. I said, here's what I think happened. I didn't come out and say, I think you did this. I gave him all the information that he could know that we were looking at him hot and heavy. And we talk with Alan Pruitt to see if he still tells the same story today he told in 1981. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet Presents You Never Can Forget. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, please stick around to hear from our friend Nina from the Already Gone podcast, a great show you should definitely be checking out. I first learned about the Burger Chef murders from her 2016 episode on the case. Murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries. Already Gone explores lesser-known cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Join me for an in-depth look at stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and locking the doors at night. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher.